This is Mike Munger, the knower of important things. I'm a professor at Duke University in the Department of Political Science and the Department of Economics. Why would any seller set prices below the market price? And if a seller does set prices so low that there's unserved demand at that price, don't secondary markets or middlemen just jump up to profit from the difference? And is this related to that weird thing Munger always says, to the consumer, all costs are transaction costs? Also, Twedge and this week's letter. It turns out that a big part of the answer to all those questions is transaction costs. Straight out of Creedmoor, this is Tidy C. I thought they'd talk about a system where there were no transaction costs, but it's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter, and it is costly to transact. Let's start with last week's letter. I'll just read it. This week's episode makes me wonder why businesses set prices below actual market values. Consider the new gaming systems, PS5 and Xbox, or graphics cards for PCs. Businesses who manufacture these products have tight manufacturer-suggested retail prices, and they enforce them. This opens up the avenue for middlemen to sell via third-party websites, eBay or Amazon, often for a big profit or markup. Wouldn't it be more efficient for the manufacturers to sell these products at higher prices and then invest extra returns to produce more units and maybe eventually bring prices down? I actually talked with a Sony rep once about this issue. He was adamant that charging higher prices, that is, prices closer to what secondary markets offered, would be reputation suicide for the business. This seems quite similar to the revulsion that many have to price gouging in emergencies. Is this rational for Sony and others to do? End of letter. When I used to work for the Federal Trade Commission, we worried about this kind of tied good as a potential antitrust violation. If you sell a game console, for example, below the cost of manufacturing, and then you charge a premium for each game you sell, does that give you monopoly power? After all, for someone who owns the game console, the only cost to acquiring the game is to pay for the game. Even if the price of that is really high, that's cheaper than buying another game console and a different game. It seems like it might be a problem, but that's not really a function of the price, but of the non-interoperability of games. PS5 games won't operate on Xboxes and so on. Well, that's an old problem. Polaroid allegedly sold its instant cameras below cost, but then charged a premium for film. Some laser printer manufacturers have tried to prevent third-party cartridges from being used in their printers. Again, allegedly, they sell their printers below not just the market price, but maybe even below the manufacturer's own cost, but have some provision that prevents the use of third-party printer cartridges. And then they're able to more than make up the profits because, in effect, they have a mini-monopoly. Someone who owns the game console or the printer has to buy the games or the printer cartridge from the seller. Well, this would only be an antitrust violation if the seller is able to acquire monopoly-like power in either the console market or the games market. Having the restriction about the type of games makes the console less valuable and less likely to buy it in the first place. The fact that there are frequent updates in consoles and new games gives the industry enough dynamic churn that it's probably not a violation. Still, I'll put up a link to a paper that claims that game console makers are violating antitrust laws, if you're interested. But there is a more direct question in the letter. Why, more generally, would sellers charge a price below the market price, or that is, the price that clears the market, so that every Everyone who wants a ticket at that price can get one. So what market price means in this setting 
is that the last person to buy is just indifferent between buying and not buying. If I charge below the market price, then it means that many people who want tickets at the price that I've quoted are not able to buy them. Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, number of other artists have tried very hard to raise the transactions cost of resale markets or middlemen, or we call them by the derogatory name scalpers. So a lot of musical artists have tried to solve this problem by making it more difficult to resell. And it, to do that, then anyone who buys it, if you buy it, you actually have to come to the concert. Not being able to resell it means that fewer scalpers are going to buy them. But the answer is transaction costs. Let's take a look back at John Locke's famous little essay, uh, Venditio. In Venditio, Locke says there's two ships in Danzig and they're both full of corn, by which he means wheat. Ostend is one possible destination where you can send your ship. There's nearly a famine in Ostend. You can sell the wheat there for 50 shillings a bushel, or you can send it to Dunkirk, where prices are normal, about 25 shillings a bushel. So I have two ships. What should I do with the two ships? I can send both to Dunkirk, where prices are normal, there's not a famine, 25 shillings a bushel. I can send both ships to Ostend, where there is a famine, or nearly a famine, and sell them for 50 shillings a bushel, or I can split. Well, since there's nearly a famine in Ostend, it seems plausible to think that if I care about people, I'll send both of my ships full of wheat to Ostend because that's where they're most needed. The real question is, what price am I allowed to charge? That's Locke's question. Is the market price fair? Am I allowed to charge that price? Why is the price higher in Ostend than in Dunkirk? The answer is that the need is greater in Ostend. But if you are concerned about social justice, you might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Why are you allowed to charge a higher price just because the people in Ostend need the grain more? They need the wheat more. Well, suppose that you wanted to send the grain to Ostend, but then you're going to try to sell it at the same price you could get in Dunkirk so that you don't profit from the desperate need of people for the grain. Well, the answer is transaction cost. If you sell below the market price, it's likely that whoever buys the thing will resell it. In fact, you pull up to the dock and say, I'm looking for somebody to buy this grain at 25 cents a bushel. And the guy says, seriously? I'll buy all of both ships. Just give me 10 minutes to borrow the money. Because they can immediately resell the grain, or they think they can immediately resell the grain at 50 shillings a bushel. Suppose that you realize that's what's going to happen. What would you like to do? Suppose you care about social justice and you want to make sure that people who actually receive the grain only pay 25 shillings a bushel. You could try to raise the transaction cost of reselling. You could have the cost of checking IDs. You can make the wheat non-transferable. That seems like it'd be pretty difficult. That analogy is probably better applied in modern terms when we see sellers for tickets at concerts. Eric Church, Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift. If you want to make sure that there's no secondary market for your tickets, then you're going to have to impose transaction cost on reselling. Why is it then that we see sellers of concert tickets selling tickets at much below the market price and not really making much effort to prevent resale? Well, the answer is transaction cost. It's very difficult to prevent resale. And notice from the seller's perspective how useful this is. 
If you could sell a lot of wheat or tickets very quickly until you've sold out, it reduces your costs of storage and you don't have to worry about the risk of having unsold inventory. So I announced that there's going to be a concert and it sold out on the first day. I can go do something else. I don't have to worry about the risk of the concert not selling out. This can be seen fairly often in the concert industry. Many of the tickets are not sold at a higher price by scalpers. Scalpers have to handle all of the transaction cost of triangulation, transfer, and trust. I sell my tickets online and people buy 100 tickets each. I can walk away. Now, it seems like I'm charging a lower price than the market would bear, but I don't have to bear any of the transactions cost of delivering those tickets to individuals. I don't have to process all of the individual orders, in other words. What that does is commoditize tickets. It turns tickets, which are kind of a personal individual item, into something that's much more like wheat, something that you could just get big scoops of. So if the seller can sell a lot of tickets very quickly, it makes perfect sense that I would do it at a lower price than the market clearing price because the transactions cost of charging the market clearing price may be more than the difference between the price that I charge and that market clearing price. The other thing, and I want to emphasize, I already said it, but I want to emphasize risk. If all the tickets are sold, I don't need to worry about whether individuals actually buy these tickets or not. Transferring that risk to middlemen is something that many sellers are pretty interested in doing, even if they might not admit it. So what we see is an industry where prices are often well below the market price. Little effort is made to prevent reselling. And then we see moral suasion where the sellers, the artists say, oh, yeah, it's terrible, all those scalpers. But in fact, given the transactions cost, it's likely to benefit them to be able to have those intermediaries incur all the costs of triangulation, transfer, and trust. And that may be why they charge what is called a convenience fee. This is the new shipping and handling. When I was growing up, there were shipping and handling fees. A convenience fee is a fee that the seller charges in order for you to be able to engage in the transaction. And it could be a pretty steep part of the cost of the ticket. As I said, it used to be shipping and handling was a way of adding on uh, cost. So you would, Runco might sell something for $19.99 or the Propio Pocket Fisherman might be only $19.99, but there was $7 shipping and handling. Andy Rooney, the TV commentator, famously said he didn't mind shipping, but he wasn't sure that having his stuff handled was something he was really looking forward to. Well, let's take a step back for a minute. Let's think about the nature of transactions cost as a problem for consumers. What if there were no transactions cost? Well, let's suppose that there's no friction. If there were no friction, the world would be very different. In fact, it would be incomprehensible to us. We do a lot of things to reduce friction, but if there were no friction, you couldn't stand up. Your feet would just slide around. Brakes wouldn't work. Clutches wouldn't work on cars, but you would be able to travel forever on a small push. Of course, you wouldn't stop until you hit something. So friction's the property of the universe. So is transaction costs. Many of the jobs that are created by the existence of transaction costs, we tend to think of as being wasteful. In fact, jobs that reduce transactions costs are a big, important part of the economy. I wrote once a parable about a boss who didn't recognize the importance of transactions cost and just figured he could fire all of his employees and run his firm on spot contracts and then just put his bunny slipper clad feet up on his desk because it would all be so easy. Well, in that parable, it didn't quite work out that way. And that's why I entitled it, Bosses Don't Wear Bunny Slippers. 
From the consumer's perspective, all costs are transaction costs. Triangulation, especially transfer, and trust. Remember, the seller only receives the transferred payment and then subtracts the transaction cost. But for the buyer, it's all transaction costs. Suppose a widget, my favorite example, costs $20. That is, the money price of the widget is $20. Costs the buyer $3 to travel to the store, $1 to wait in line and pay, and $3 to travel back home. And implicitly, there's $4 in risk to trust that the product is actually going to work. Maybe one in five widgets fail and there's no warranty. So when you add all that up, what does it cost the buyer to buy the widget? Well, $31, $20 for the widget, $6 for the round trip travel, $4 for risk of failure, and $1 for standing in line. If the consumer doesn't go to buy that widget, the consumer pays nothing. If they do, it costs $31. A reduction in any of those aspects counts the same dollar for dollar. In other words, if I'm as a seller able to reduce the transaction's cost of the buyer by a dollar, it has an effect similar to reducing the monetary price of the product by a dollar. The seller receives the $20, that's it, and the seller has to pay the cost of a cashier to take the money and a security guard to make sure that people don't steal. The buyer pays $31. So the buyer pays $31, including transaction costs, and the seller receives something less than $20. Now, economists call this the transaction cost wedge. Notice that the buyer is paying a lot more than the seller receives. So let's suppose that the seller offers free shipping, which means you don't have to go to the store to pick it up and you can buy it online. Let's say it costs the seller $4 to deliver the widget. Now, that saves the consumer $7. You shop online, there's no travel to the store, and there's no standing in line. The question is, what price to charge? If the seller charges $24 and offers free shipping, is the buyer being duped? After all, the seller was selling for $20 and is now selling for $24. The monetary cost has gone up by $4, but the buyer is saving $7. The seller receives $24, has to pay the $4 for delivery, but now doesn't have to pay for a cashier, bricks-and-mortar store, or for security. That transactions cost wedge, the difference between what the buyer pays, including transaction cost, is now much less. So if the money price goes up, but the inconvenience goes way down, the widget is actually cheaper from the perspective of the buyer. Saving time is important, as Don Draper reminds us. That's what the money is for! The point is that to the buyer, all costs are transaction costs, including the purchase price. Now, you can raise the purchase price if you cut the transaction costs by even more, and the consumer will be happy and buy more of the product. Adam Smith said this beautifully in Book 1, Chapter 5 of The Wealth of Nations. The real price of everything is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. The real price of everything is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. Now, this is usually read as claim about labor theory of value, about toil. But the trouble and inconvenience of acquiring the thing is just as important. So that's a really deep insight. The labor is both that of the producer in making the thing and making it available, and the labor of the buyer in acquiring it. 
The determinant of price for commodities is generally the cost of production. But once a thing is produced, the value is determined by bargaining between the owner and the prospective buyer. Every agreement on price requires a disagreement on subjective value. If we agree to sell a widget for $20, then the seller must value the widget less than that and the buyer must value it more. The insight here is that even if there is a substantial disagreement about value, that is, the seller values it less than the buyer, so that the widget should move from the current owner to someone who values it more, that movement can be locked up by transaction costs because transaction cost is friction. The way I try to summarize, and we got some mail uh, asking for some more details, the way I try to summarize this complicated argument is simple. To the consumer, all costs are transaction costs. Whoa, that sound means it's time for the twedge. This week's economics joke is actually a cartoon and one of my favorite cartoons. I'll put up a link to it. But imagine that there's a woman's prison. Some women are sitting around a table playing cards. The tough older woman who has been there a long time says, in a gravelly voice made deep by years of cigarette smoking. What are you ladies in for? One of the ladies answers, my business prices were higher than my competitors, so I was charged with price gouging. Across the table, another card player says, my prices were lower than my competitors, so I was charged with predatory pricing. A third card player says, my prices were the same as my competitors, so I was charged with collusion. Well, those are the only three possibilities. If you charge a higher price than your competitors, that's price gouging. If you charge a lower price, that's predatory pricing. And if you charge the same price, that's collusion. We have a strange, moralistic, puritanical attitude towards price competition. And I thought that joke illustrated it very well. Although, as usual, with twedges, it's not very funny. Well, it's time for this week's letter from GG. I often think in terms of transaction cost when it comes to the dollar hot dog night at the local ballpark. It attracts longer than usual lines, meaning higher inconvenience costs. At the usual price of $8 a dog, a $1 dog would be a bargain. Even if I have to stand in line an extra 20 minutes or so to get the hot dog, let's suppose that I am willing to pay $15 an hour so 20 minutes is $5 in transaction cost, then it would still be a bargain. However, it doesn't encapsulate the real cost. I really hate waiting in line, particularly on hard concrete, when I'm shoulder to jowl and some of them intoxicated to boot, the other patrons. On top of the negative utility of the line is the opportunity cost of not watching the game, which incidentally is higher now as rules have sped up things. That is, since the game is shorter, if I miss 20 minutes of the game, I've missed quite a bit of it. Even worse, the bargain has an externality effect as the added time, crowd, and loss of game applies to the hot dog as well as anything else on the menu. And then the second element, I could grudgingly pay $8 for a dog. However, that's because I have quite a few dollars in my pocket, say $100. I could easily get my fill of $8 dogs. If you were to give my ticket to a man with a few dollars in his pocket, say $10, that $1 dog night is immensely more valuable, even enough to endure the negative utility and opportunity costs. I don't know how this plays into the claim that to the consumer, all costs are transactions cost, if at all. But as I bring my thoughts to a close, makes me wonder if perhaps transactions costs are the ultimate way to price discriminate. End of letter. 
Well, thanks for listening. We'll work on that puzzle, have another hilarious this week's economics joke, and more next week on Tidy C.